Okay, well let's um, pick up this week with a little bit of review of last week and of my, I had four students last week, I have four students this week, and 50% of them weren't here last week, so we need to review. Um, propitiation is what we discussed last week, which can be defined by these three things, an appeasement of wrath, removal of guilt, and the substitutionary aspect. We discussed how in the Old Testament there was an atonement made via animals, um, but at, and as with that atonement in the Old Testament, the New Testament propitiation of Christ is the personal expiation or removal of sin and the purging or removal of guilt, effectively appeasing the wrath of God. And it's very clear in Scripture that the means of cleansing in both the Old and New Covenants is blood. And we discussed last week more specifically death. Uh, something had to bleed out of the eye in the place of the sinner. We uh, also talked about how that word atonement isn't a New Testament word. So you don't have to use it around here if you don't want to because Latter-day Saints define it all goofy. We talked about that. Okay. Well, my... Oh, I'm not on the, uh, the right window here. Here we go. Uh, from MacArthur, by offering sacrifices, the Old Testament believer identifies, probably should be identified, himself outwardly with the covenant God and his covenant people. That outward demonstration ought to be the result of true faith. However, when that initiating faith is absent, the sacrifice is worthless, an empty gesture devoid of any spiritual value. So the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, that happened once every year in Israel, all the, the people gathered together, they uh, slaughtered one of the goats, they took the other goat out into the wilderness as a, the scapegoat, they killed the ox, all that's going on for the sins of the people. But did it cover the sins of every one of the people? Only those who the faith. There you go. Only those who had true faith, right? So the religious act or the ceremonial act didn't truly save. It was the means of faith that caused someone to be saved, both in the Old Covenant as in the end of the New Covenant. The bridge between the covenants is the propitiation of Christ. It enacted the New Covenant. We discussed how Jesus, uh, with his disciples in the upper, uh, well, are we in the upper room for this? Probably not. Uh, this is in Luke's account. And in Matthew's account, this is the new covenant of my blood. blood. We talked through the different versions of propitiation in the New Testament and where you can find those versions in the New Testament uh, of the word propitiation. We looked at Romans 3, and we looked a little bit at Romans 5. Okay, Through the propitiation of Christ, we have justification, salvation, reconciliation, Period. <laughs> I thought there was another one. Uh, justification, salvation, and reconciliation. Okay, Because of the substitutionary death of Christ, our guilt is removed, God's wrath is appeased, and we have these things left for us. Uh, talked a little bit last week about Rob Bell. Oh, scary that we even mentioned his name, but how he talked that, you know, it's not good in your gospel to teach that God saves you from God. Well, we saw in Romans, I believe it was, uh, I can't remember if it was three or five, but we see in those passages where we are saved from the wrath of God. Um, 
Now I need to know. Let's look at Romans 5. Let's see if it's that one. Romans 5, 6 to 11. Yeah, verse 9 of Romans 5. Very important verse. The book of Romans is a very important book. Someone want to read verse 9? Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Justified by his blood, his propitiation. We've been justified. And we're saved from what? In wrath. wrath. The wrath of God. Yes. So we are saved from, in a sense, we are saved from God and his wrath, aren't we? Because his wrath is poured out forever in hell, justly. And we are saved from that through the propitiation, the substitutionary death of Christ. 118 also talks about the wrath of God. 118, yeah. Um, even now, from heaven is revealed the wrath of God. How is it revealed even today, according to Romans 1? A little side quiz. How is God's wrath revealed right now? Three times. Turning, turning us over to our own yes. sin. Three times in Romans 1, verses 24 and 26, 20. and either 22 and 20, or 28. I can't remember which one. They're all even numbers. Uh, three times in Romans 1, it says God is giving people over to their sin. <laughs> giving them over to their sin. Is it 22 times? Uh, it 28. 28. Yep, Romans 1, 24, 26, 28. 24, 26, 28. We can, we can work with it. All right. So now today we're going to, going to talk about the two things, two major events, I should say, that followed the death of Christ, which, of course, is the resurrection and the ascension. Uh, first, we want to uh, just talk about how big of a deal this is. Is the resurrection a big deal? <laughs> It's the big deal. Yeah. Just on Easter, though, right? <laughs> the resurrection of Jesus is the most important event in all of history because of the validation it provides. It validates Jesus' teachings, his claims, his works, the, the gospel, the gospel message, and scripture itself. Because of the resurrection of Christ, these things have been validated. I believe it's in, uh, let's see... Acts 17. Um, you don't have to turn there. But it, as Paul is preaching in Mars Hill, yeah. he's furnished proof to all men. That's it. Raising him from the dead. Yes, it says, God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, capital M man, whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Okay. Why do we believe that Jesus is alive? Let's answer that question biblically. It's like a no-brainer type question. Well, duh, we're Christians. That's why we believe it. But let's get to the root of the matter. There are three Old Testament texts that speak of the mystery of the resurrection. And I've given you the books on your handout, but anybody know the, uh, the references, the verse references? Someone want to really impress the class here and get a gold star today. The Job one might be a little tough. I'll give you the Job one. It's... 19, 25 to 27. Job 19, 25 to 27. 1925, that was a good year, wasn't it? <laughs> okay, what about Psalms 
and Isaiah. Do we know those references to the resurrection there? Two verse tens. Psalm 16.10. Very, very important one. And Isaiah 53.10. Job 19, Psalm 16, and Isaiah 53. Let's look at these. Who wants to grab Job 19, 25 to 27? Mr. Bowman? Psalm 16.10. Who's got that? Jerry Carroll? And Isaiah 53.10. Someone want to get that one? Isaiah 53.10. Jim, thanks. Okay. Three Old Testament texts that speak of the mystery of the resurrection. And this is speaking of the resurrection of Christ. There are other passages that speak of the resurrection of human beings, particularly Daniel 12, 2, where it says the dead will be raised, some to everlasting life, um, and others to judgment. But let's look at Job 19, 25 to 27. Shall I sing it? Ah, you could. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, with whom my eyes will see, and not another. My heart faints within me. Right. I know my Redeemer lives. Psalm 16.10. For you will not abandon my soul to show me, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. All right. So David wrote that psalm, and he says, You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And Peter, we're going to talk about this in a moment, Peter makes the argument in Acts chapter 2, his sermon at Pentecost, oh, wait a second, we know where David's tomb is, we know his body's undergoing decay, that couldn't be talking about just David, who is that talking about? And he applies it to Jesus. And then Isaiah 53.10. <clears throat> Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, he has not put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his land. <laughs> the, the Lord is going to bruise him, crush him, and yet he will see his offspring and his days will be prolonged. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? You've got crucifixion and resurrection even in one verse there in Isaiah 53. Amazing. Thoughts on these three Old Testament passages? Sound good? Good ones to memorize? All right. Psalm 16 that Jerry Carroll read is the most explicit prophecy, and it's the only one of the three with New Testament backing, meaning it's the only one in the New Testament that gets applied to Jesus. All right. The other two don't, though certainly the theme is there. In Acts 2, Peter's sermon at Pentecost, he explained the reference that it's making to Christ in Psalm 16. And he evidenced it by witnesses, his glorification, and the Spirit's coming. Let's look at that together, Acts chapter 2, how Peter used this passage in his sermon. Starting at verse 29. Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 29. <clears throat>
And remember, Peter is preaching to Jews here. They're at Pentecost. They uh, come to Jerusalem from all around. And he's speaking to people who know the Hebrew Scriptures. And he says in verse 29, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore... Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You see how important that Old Testament reference to the resurrection was to Peter when speaking to that audience. That this really was a prophecy regarding the resurrection of Christ. All four Gospels conclude with the resurrection of Christ. You've got this section that says New Testament evidence for the resurrection. You can just jot these things down because I'm going to kind of be jumping all over there. And you can just jot notes down where they fit. Um, but it's important to note that all four Gospels conclude with the resurrection of Christ. Isn't it interesting that not all four Gospels talk about Jesus walking on water? Not all four Gospels talk about Jesus feeding the 5,000. Not all four Gospels talk about him turning water into wine. In fact, John is the only one that speaks of that. John's the only one that speaks of many of his miracles and many of the things he taught. Yet all four Gospels talk about the death on the cross and the resurrection. Not, not even all four Gospels talk about the birth of Christ. But all four Gospels talk about the death and resurrection. Very important. The apostles' preaching in Acts emphasized the resurrection. You see the emphasis in the gospel accounts, and then you see the emphasis in the preaching. As they went about planting churches, evangelizing, doing all their work in the book of Acts, they were always emphasizing the resurrection. It was not a gospel message that they left out that Jesus rose from the dead. It's essential to the gospel message, and the apostles preached the resurrection. Paul taught that the resurrection was central to our justification. It's a very interesting verse, Romans 4.25. He was raised because of our justification, or for our justification, in Romans 4.25. The death of Christ, of course, in our place for our sins, paid the price, appeased the wrath of God. It led us to justification, but not without the resurrection. It is with the propitiation resurrection together that we see the finished work of Christ and we receive justification. Okay. The New Testament is the most well-preserved document of antiquity. You can make this note under historicity. Uh, the New Testament is the most well-preserved document of all time. It is both accurate and consistent. So as we think about uh, is this, are these Gospels, all four Gospels mentioned it, okay, well, so what? Who cares? These Gospels are just fairy tales, right? Well, no. Uh, in fact, if we were to apply 
the same method of understanding to the Bible that we apply to other works of history, to know things from world history, we would walk away saying, well, those other things may not be certain, but the Bible is certain. <laughs> the, the, what we know about Aristotle and Plato and, and all those guys, that might not be certain, but what we know about Jesus Christ is certain. It's the most well-preserved document of antiquity. The resurrection is a fact of history. The disciples, think about this too, the disciples would have known if Jesus did not rise from the dead. But what did they go on to do? They died for him. If, they, if anybody would have known that the resurrection was a hoax, it would have been the men who were closest to him. Peter, who was running to the tomb. It would have been them. They would have known. If, if the culture would have known that this was some sort of a hoax, why would have the disciples died for Jesus' sake? Especially after they ran away at his crucifixion. Yes, yes. There was a radical change because of the resurrection in the disciples, that they were willing to die. And they're not, who's willing to die for a lie? Something you know is a lie. Now, if you don't know it's a lie, well, that's a different story. There are many people willing to die for that. But they would have known. And they, they died for Jesus' sake. Okay? The resurrection, this is important, the resurrection was a physical, bodily resurrection. This goes down to the next section about his body. A physical, bodily resurrection, not a mere spiritual resurrection. There have been people in church history who have taught that he did not uh, rise from the dead with a physical body, but that he was like a ghost. He was hovering over the ground, floating around. He, he, he wasn't a real body. Uh, but he was a physical body. If we deny that, we would be denying several places in Scripture that we're going to look at momentarily. But we need to hold fast to the doctrine that the resurrection was physical, a bodily resurrection. Furthermore, Christ was risen never to die again. And this sets him apart from, in Luke 7, the widow's son, and John 11, Lazarus. He was risen never to die again. His resurrection was unique in all of history in that way. Okay? Thoughts or questions on these things? Are you going to talk about the ascension? It's coming. <laughs> yes. All right. I should have looked at the notes. <laughs> Let's consider the things that Jesus did in this state. Um, I'm going to put them all up there, and then we can group them together, um, and people can turn. So. Who would like to take the uh, one in Matthew? Matthew 28, 9. Jerry Bowman. Okay, we've got two in the book of Luke. They're back-to-back, -back, 30 and 31. Who can get Luke 24 for us? Dory, thanks. Acts. There's only, well, there's two in the book of Acts. Acts 1, 9 and Acts 10, 41. Who can grab the Acts? Jerry Carroll. And the final one is John. Two passages in John. One of the woodheads one again? Sure. Okay, thanks, Tyler. Very good. <laughs> So, when we're considering the material of Jesus' post-resurrection body, we need to consider what we're told in Scripture as we make that deduction. And let's start with Matthew 28, 9. What does it say about Jesus and his post-resurrection body? 
verse 8 says, They left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. All right. How can you take hold of a ghost's feet? You can't. Uh, something that's merely a, a mirage or a figment of your imagination. You can't grab hold of it. There's physicality there. If they're grabbing hold of feet, there's a physical interaction taking place. All right, Luke 24, 30. Luke chapter 24, verse 30. Who had Luke? Was that you, Jerry? Oh, that was Lori. When he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. And you want me to read 31? Sure. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. All right, so, now this is interesting. He's there with them eating, Breaking bread with them, eating with them. You, uh, you can't eat if you don't have some physicality. I'm assuming they didn't see the bread go down through his intestines. It's not like he was like transparent and they could just see the piece of bread. The piece of bread went somewhere and was digested, I guess. Um, he <laughs> ate. All right. But then, in verse 31, then he's gone. He disappeared. Now that's something, because you can't do that. Sometimes you want to, <laughs> but you can't. You can't just vanish. Yet he did that. Okay, interesting. Um, Acts. Let's look at uh, ten forty one and then one nine. So ten forty one first, and then we'll go back to one nine at the end. So just just ten forty one for now, Jerry. Okay. Not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That is. To us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. Okay. We ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Not only did he eat, but he drank. That's amazing. And uh, let's do John 21 and then John 20. Going backwards. Yeah, we're going backwards. All right. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him. Who are you, knowing that it was the Lord? Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and the fish likewise. The resurrected Christ says, come have breakfast. Wow, that's interesting. If Jesus ate breakfast after his resurrection, we know for sure that that's a very important meal, isn't it? So, uh, the most important meal of the day, so I'm saying. But let's go back and consider what happened in chapter 20, verse 26. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas said, Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be with you. Okay, John's very specific about how this happened. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, he came and appeared with them. He was with them. Okay, not only did he disappear in Luke 24, but he appeared. In John chapter 20. And of course, uh, we've got, it's not on here, but his interaction with Thomas, where Thomas felt his hands on his side. And then what happened in Acts 1 9, Mr. Carroll? And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. All right, and he ascended into heaven. So if you consider these first four, 
bullet points here. These are all things that emphasize his physicality. He was touched, he ate, he drank, cooked, okay? physical. Yet if you consider these final three, these are things that are different than what we can do. It's a different, uh, a different type of matter where he can appear and disappear and even ascend into heaven because scripture tells us that what cannot inherit the kingdom of God? Flesh and blood. Flesh and blood. And he ascended into heaven. So um, it's important to consider all of those things. Thoughts on that? Only God. <laughs> yeah. Unique, right? We have to say unique. Well, we do have the coming and going of angels. Do you remember the definition that I give in angelology that surely you learned four years ago? <laughs> Just four years ago. God has been lost in four years. Angels are immaterial spirit beings created by God, named, and given a spiritual purpose. Well, I was, I didn't remember that. Okay. Forgive me. That's okay. But I, he was, all five of us were responding to, I mean, they can appear and disappear. Yes. We don't count much on yes. the physicality. Correct. Yeah, and there does seem to be a way in which they can appear as men. Yes. Uh, of course, there's the interesting verse in Hebrews that we can sometimes entertain angels unawares. Why are we unaware? Well, because apparently they're appearing in such a way that isn't remarkable to us. Um, and, of course, there are a variety of narratives describing how <laughs> angels interact with humans. And, um, boy, a lot of times it seems just like one man with another man. Um, so there's, there's a way in which God allows for angels to appear in a certain way, um, though they are by nature immaterial, uh, since there is no decay or death for angels, is there? They're created, some are elect, and some are evil, they became demons, and they don't die, um, they are. And uh, that's a different state than our physicality, where we're born, we decay and die. Go ahead to ask Elijah. You know, kind of got up there. Yeah. <laughs> Flesh and blood. Yeah. They were translated or something. Yeah. And they were uh, changed in the twinkling of an eye as precursors to our rapture. They were raptured. They were beamed up. Yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah. Okay. Jesus' post-resurrection glorified body is certainly physical, yet it also transcends space and matter. It's important to recognize. Um, when Jesus promised to his apostles the very end of Matthew's gospel at the end of the Great Commission, he said, Behold, I am... What? He may have said, Lo, and lo, I am... With you always, even until... The end of the age. And they didn't all stay together, did they? They scattered. How is Jesus with them always? Uh, what's the promise in Matthew 18 regarding church discipline? Jesus says, where two or three are gathered, I am there in the midst of them. 
Okay, so Jesus makes promises and Jesus shows by the way he lived in this post-resurrection state that he transcends space and matter though he has a physical body. Meaning he is not bound by space and matter in his post-resurrection body. Because there is some way in which his physical body is different than our physical bodies today. And of course he was resurrected never to die. That's enough for us to be alerted that hey there's, there's something going on there that's different than ours. But the uh, transcending of space and matter is, is a key aspect, okay? This physicality reflects, in a sense, the original design of God and that man should not die but continue on in a physical body in perfect harmony with God, all right? Uh, when Adam was created, he was created not to die, right? He was created to live on in a physical body in perfect harmony with God. And so we see that in the physicality that Jesus has, that never to die, he's in perfect harmony with the Father. And in one, one day, when this mortality puts on immortality, when this, uh, what, what are, what's the other one that's used? Intent? No, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, mortality must put on immortality. This, uh, Invincible, but on invincible. No, I can't remember what the other one is. But but when that happens, we will be back in that renewed state to live on forever in perfect harmony with God. Thoughts, questions. Hopefully, the resurrection is something you don't have doubts about, uh, or that you're not confused about. There will there will be issues. Perishable and imperishable. That's what I was looking for. When this perishable puts on imperishable. If Jesus is not alive, he could not be the one to return and conquer, fulfilling numerous Old Testament prophecies. I gave you three uh, Old Testament passages about the resurrection, but how many are there about the second coming? Lots. Lots and lots. We'll talk about those eventually. And he wouldn't be the one to fulfill those if he wasn't resurrected. Uh, the resurrection and what you do with the physical nature of the resurrection touches all sorts of doctrines, uh, not the least of which is the second coming. Okay? Ready to move on to ascension now? Okay. <laughs> Here's a fact. Jesus didn't die again after the resurrection. Okay, good. Uh, Jesus isn't roaming around on the earth somewhere. Just like he's not with the Apostle John roaming around on the earth somewhere. That's a Mormon joke that I didn't mean to make. Uh, <laughs> Jesus ascended to where he came from, heaven. Remember in John 3.13, Jesus said, No one has ascended into heaven except for the Son of Man. Who? Descended. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, Jesus ascended to heaven where he came from. There are two Old Testament texts that speak of the ascension of Christ. They're both in the book of Psalms. Now, you would really impress me if you knew these off the top of your head. Anybody? Anybody? Bueller? No. Chapter 2. No. <laughs> Psalm 68.18 and Psalm 110.1. Now, you, you know 110.1 for sure. Um, and you might think, well, how, how is that talking about the... The ascension, the Lord said to my Lord, said to my right hand, tell me carry me your footstool. Well, uh, because that happens after the ascension, where he says that. Um, 
Now, it, the prophecy takes place before it, but in reality, it's fulfilled afterwards. That's how the New Testament applies it. And we're going to look at these in the New Testament application of these. Let's turn to Psalm 68 together. We'll just look at these together. Oh, my. Psalm 68:18. This is one that you would just read and not, not think right off the bat, oh, this is definitely talking about the ascension of Christ. You'd probably... Read it, and the first thing you would think is, what's for lunch? You would, re you would read a verse like this and not really think much of it, but there's a lot there, and it's talking about Jesus. So let's read Psalm 68, 18. You want to read that, Mr. Bowman? You have ascended on, how shall I sing that one too? No. Uh, <laughs> you have led captive your captives. You have received gifts among men, even among the rebellious also that the Lord God may dwell there. Okay. Talking about the ascension of Christ. We'll see that in the New Testament momentarily. In Psalm 110.1, did you know this is the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament? Psalm 110.1. Very important verse. Psalm 110.1. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Okay? These are the two texts that speak of the ascension of Christ from the Hebrew Scriptures. Both Old Testament passages are quoted in the New Testament as referring to Jesus' glorification by way of ascension. Psalm 68 is used by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4. Let's just continue turning together. Ephesians 4, 7 through 10. A somewhat difficult passage to preach and teach on, but important for our purposes today, seeing how it's applied to the ascension of Christ. The beginning of Ephesians 4, of course, is there's unity among God's people. There's one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And now would someone read verses 7 through 10 for us? Ephesians 4, 7 through 10. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. All right. Like I said, a hard passage to teach, and I'm thankful I'm not teaching Ephesians 4, 7 through 10 today. I am, re I am referencing it for you uh, as pointing to Psalm 68 uh, being applied to the ascension of Christ in Old Testament prophecy regarding the ascension. And then, oh, uh, Christ ascended into heaven and built his church. And we'll talk about that more in ecclesiology. And that's the general theme here, talking about the unity of the church, talking about the measure of Christ's gift in verse 7. And it's through the ascension where Christ goes to rule and reign from on high that he begins to build his church as he promised in Matthew 16. And uh, the, the passage in Psalm 68 is referencing that fact. Okay. Light questions or thoughts on that? 
good. You're all afraid to make me feel stupid, so that's, that's good. <laughs> Psalm 110 is quoted by Peter in his sermon at Pentecost. Again, the sermon at Pentecost where we were earlier. In Acts chapter 2, and I'll read this for us. In Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 33, again, speaking to Jews who knew their Hebrew scriptures, Peter says, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. I read that earlier. Uh, there it is again, a reference to the ascension from the Hebrew Scriptures. Acts 1, 6-11 is the clearest description in the Bible concerning the ascension of Jesus. This is uh, part of this Jerry Carroll read for us a little bit ago. But it says just simply, while they were looking on, a cloud received Jesus out of their sight, and they were gazing intently into the sky as he was going. So it was a visible ascension, like those, uh, those tubes at the bank that you put in the bank that shoot up. <laughs> there he went, and they're just standing there looking. An amazing thing. The ascension inaugurated the sun entering into his full glory. Entering into his full glory. Does someone know Hebrews 1 3? Does someone have that memorized? Hebrews 1 3. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down. At the right hand of the majesty on high. After making purifications for sins, he ascended to heaven and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The ascension inaugurated the sun entering into his full glory. Okay. Stephen, Paul, and John all beheld the ascended, glorified Christ. Stephen, of course, the first martyr in the church. Uh, there he was in his final words. Do you remember what he said? What did he, he say that he saw? What did you say? He said standing. Did you say sitting? You said standing. Stephen said standing. Standing. And that's important to know. We're going to come back to that in a moment. But he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Okay. There's a, a lot theologically to get into with that, but we're not going to right now. Uh, just the fact, Stephen saw Jesus. And then in Acts, Paul, of course, saw Jesus as Jesus confronted him on the road to Damascus. Jesus was ascended at that point, glorified at that point. Jesus, or Paul beheld Jesus. And uh, John, Revelation 1, the revelation opens up with he sees the exalted glorified, ascended Christ. Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God. He has finished the work that he came to accomplish. He is the ruling king. Redemption is complete. 
Now, I just made a, a note there in Acts 7 that he is standing at the right hand of God. There are a variety of reasons why uh, perhaps Stephen saw him standing. To hear more detail on that, you can go back and listen to Acts 7 in our Wednesday night series. We talked about that at some length. It's the only reference in the New Testament that says Jesus is standing. All other references to what Jesus is doing now, speaking of him, seated. And why is that important, that he's seated? What means because God said, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies your footstool. Yes. So, doesn't have any need to stand up yet to start raining. When does a when does a farmer sit? When the work's done, right? <laughs> you don't get work done by sitting. But you sit you sit when it's done. Redemption is complete and he's a ruling king. So um, you know we think of what Jesus is doing right now. He is building his church from a seated ruling position. He has completed redemption. Right, other thoughts on ascension before we go back and talk through everything from these two lessons. Someplace it says that he is ascended into heaven until um, can't think of the verse. Yeah. But they saw him ascending. He was with them for forty days, mingling with them. Is that maybe First Corinthians fifteen? Sounds. That's in the Bible. The first uh, 10 verses of 1 Corinthians 15. No. Well, we're working too hard on it, but Jesus ascended to heaven. He wasn't, isn't popping back and forth. So, yeah. The, uh, the idea that he came to America at some point. Yeah. Doesn't fit. Yeah. Now, but there is a, and we don't want to lose this, he's still omnipresent, isn't he? Yep. Now, while he had, had his earthly ministry in the incarnation, there's debate as to whether he was omnipresent during that time. He obviously veiled some of his attributes during that time. He says, no one knows the day or the hour except the Father. Does that mean Jesus was no longer omniscient? Well, he was omniscient still, yet he willingly veiled some of that, uh, some of his attributes. Um, he, he wasn't walking around as a blinding light during his earthly ministry. His glory was veiled. And so his omnipresence during that earthly ministry, we don't know for certain. There's a case to be made both ways. But now, certainly, as he's back in glory, ruling and reigning from the heavens, he is still omnipresent, isn't he? And he has a physical body, doesn't he? Has, he, he went, Jesus went from having one nature to taking on a human nature. He has two natures. And he has maintained that. He has maintained both. Okay? He doesn't, what would happen to the, to the physical body that walked out of the grave? He didn't throw it away. Okay? And how all that works, you could drive yourself nuts trying to figure all that out. Uh, but there are just some certain facts that you have to accept without being able to reconcile it all in your little pea-picking brain, okay? And that is that he is resurrected physically, he has maintained a physical body, he is still omnipresent. Well, and he was also omniscient in his physical body, which he saw 
He knew men's hearts. Nathaniel, he knew men's hearts. He could heal, remote control. So, but, uh, that's, a, that's all part of the big thing. But it's beyond us, miserable, pathetic little specks. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. We must be sure not to go beyond what is written. <laughs> All right, uh, now what? Let's start to think about the propitiation again. What does it mean that the Father made the Son a propitiation? Here, I'll just remove some of it. Okay. <laughs> what does it mean that the Father made the Son a propitiation? He's a substitution. Okay, there's a substitutionary aspect. Good. What else? Well, it was the Father's will. Okay, yeah. Um, the Father did make the Son. He set forth the Son. That's the language of Romans. He put forth the Son as a propitiation. What else is included in that word, propitiation? You're talking to your Latter-day Saint neighbor, and that person says something about the atonement, and you say, actually, the atonement, the word atonement isn't in the New Testament. The word is propitiation. And they say, I have never heard of that word. What does that mean? What do you say? Well, that was sufficient. Okay. Satisfactory for what? For all the sins of the world. Yeah. Okay. It's also it's a. Said, but it's to satisfy all the sins of the world doesn't make sense. Okay. It's to satisfy the the uh, payment, the wrath, the yeah. It's the payment that's satisfied. It's the debt of the sin against God. Okay, against God, God's wrath. Because we, we did touch briefly last week, and I know you weren't here, been here last week, but we touched on the ransom theory of the atonement, which says Jesus died to pay the price to Satan, because Satan has kidnapped what? all of humanity. And Jesus <laughs> had to die to pay the ransom to Satan, so we'd be free and be able to go back to God. Well, that's not what his payment was for. His payment was for the Father's wrath. Right. And right. and we also touched on in his own. Mm -hmm. Jesus wrote the law, didn't he? Mm -hmm. And who's going to judge the world, the living and the dead? Jesus. Jesus. Okay. Hey. But it's very specifically propitiation, very specifically, is satisfying Old Testament law for the requirement for blood. Very specifically. Yep. There had to be a clean sacrifice. He had to pay in blood. Leviticus 17.11, I've given you the altar uh, to make atonement for your souls. Yes. Yes. So it, um, the propitiation, it appeases God's wrath. It is a substitutionary aspect, and it also removes something. The propitiation of Christ removes what that's on our account. Not just debt, but sin. Sin. And what comes with that, if you were in a court... Yeah. Condemnation. Judgment. Judgment. We're all dancing around it. Guilt. Guilt. Okay. Guilt. Yeah. Removes guilt. So that we can be declared righteous. 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 Innocent. Innocent. If guilt is removed, we are innocent. Okay. Sorry. I should have made more of the courtroom scene. No. Uh, <laughs> if guilt is removed, what is left but innocence? And all guilt is removed in the propitiation of Christ. All wrath is appeased. Therefore, the Father has no wrath toward us. We are perfectly innocent. He only has love. He only has uh, 
just the genuine care, concern, grace, mercy, peace. It's good stuff. Well, how does the resurrection give hope to those struggling with the loss of a loved one? And we didn't touch on this, so I need you to think beyond what we just studied. Um, but the resurrection of Christ, considering it as a first fruit of what is to come, how does the resurrection give hope to those struggling with the loss of a loved one? He died for the ones who had faith who had already died physically, plus those who were alive and those who would be born yeah. for future. Yes. Yeah, for all three of those. And and what does his, if we consider his resurrection as first fruits of what's to come, or as the first step in a pattern, what is to come for those who believe in him? They're with the, the resurrection. resurrected body. That's right. Never to die again. That's right. We will be with him in the likeness of his resurrection. Um, now, of course, let's let's think about those who have lost a loved one who was unsaved, not a believer. Mm -hmm. How does the resurrection give that person hope? So, put your counseling hat on. Well, for one thing, we don't know their hearts. All yeah, but for all intents and purposes, this person rejected okay. the gospel to the grave. I mean, we have to deal with we, we deal with these things. Go ahead. Christ is sovereign over it, and He's shown that He can prove that He's sovereign over that because He resurrected. Okay. Yeah. So Christ is Lord. Um, he is sovereign. He's in control. There's proof that's been furnished for His lordship. What else? Are there any other angles you want to take concerning the resurrection? Not many blunt counselors in the room. <laughs> How about being straightforward with somebody and saying, yes, only the Lord knows, you know, uh, Elmer's heart, you know, only, <laughs> only the Lord knows. But it doesn't seem like he believed the gospel. Can I share with you the gospel? So you won't go the same way as Elmer? Right? Right? Isn't that important to do? Not to pretend as though that person's okay if that person really is in danger, if that person's soul is in danger, and to warn those who are still alive who can do something about it for their own soul. Isn't that important? The resurrection, critical. Yeah, one thing uh, my, my other pastor used to always do if he had to preach or agreed to preach at a person's uh, who was probably lost. He would. He wouldn't mention. He wouldn't say that. But he would say, if that person could come back and talk to you now, mm -hmm. they would say, "What are you going to do with Jesus?" Yeah, indeed, absolutely. And that, I think that's an honest statement. Yes, it is. If they could step back, because even in the Bible it says if they could step back and tell you, yeah, yes, they would tell you to consider Jesus. And as a minister of the gospel, I would much rather do a funeral than a, a wedding or any other type of joyful event. Because, yeah, even though it's tragic to see death occur and to be that close and involved with it, that's a lot closer to reality than what we live in the majority of our lives. And people are more open. Their hearts are softer. You're being obedient to Ecclesiastes. 
Were you going to expand on that and some additional thoughts? What's better to be in a house of mourning than a house of joy? Good. Yeah. And we can't. We can't affect the things of the dead, but we can affect those of the present. Yes. And of those we love and care for to acknowledge the gospel to them, that they may be saved and then their offspring be saved. Yes. And the reality of it is, those days after the loss of a loved one, those are those are critical moments where their mind and their heart are just in a different place than where they normally are. And you can speak on another level. It's like you guys are interacting on another plane. So take advantage of those opportunities. Right? How can we draw comfort from Christ's ascension? It's probably something you haven't thought of a bunch uh, in your life. The ascension of Christ. How can we draw comfort from that? Like you said, it's finished. His work is done. He's left us a comforter. Mm -hmm. Good. The work is complete. He is seated. And, boy, aren't we glad that there's nothing left for us to do? That it's finished? Just the, the anxiety of the rat race of a legalistic system. So many people embrace it to their, to their detriment. It is finished. You draw comfort from that. And what's he doing now, according to Hebrews 7.25? He always lives to do what? Make intercession for us. To make intercession. And in Romans 8, he says the same thing. Yeah, if he lived, if he rose again, not to die, but to roam the earth or to, you know, do random tasks of whatever, um, and we just weren't sure what he was doing, there might not be comfort in that. But when Scripture tells us what he's doing, he's ruling and reigning on high as king, proving his lordship. He is at the right hand of the Father in majesty. He's interceding for us. Wow. Amazing. Lots of comfort there. Lots and lots of comfort. And as Tyler mentioned, he has sent the comforter, the parakletos, the one who comes alongside the Holy Spirit. Okay? So for next week, I want you to consider this verse from Hebrews. I call them memory verses because I want you to try, but it's okay if you fail. But <clears throat> Hebrews 12, 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of, of, of faith. I almost thought it said of our faith. I wonder why I thought that. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You think the ascension was important to the writer of Hebrews? After making purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 1.3. He always lives to make intercession for the saints. Hebrews 7. And here it is. He has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 12.2. Good. Other thoughts or questions to finish up? We've got maybe 90 seconds. Well, the, the author of Hebrews was speaking to Jewish people. Yeah. And Christ is the great high priest that doesn't have to go year after year making sacrifice. The sacrifice is done. It's over. He is there in the seat. Indeed, it truly is finished. It's done. Okay. Well, good. Someone want to close us in a word of prayer?